Hey everyone, it's July 7th, 2019. It's your episode 187 of At Percussion. My name is Casey Cangelosi, and with me as usual are Ben Charles. Hi everybody. And Carly Vigna, how's it going? Hi everyone, good, good. Carly, do you want to give us some breaking news? Is that, do you have any breaking news? Sure. Actually, what I was just thinking about what's going on in my life lately that is really exciting is I organized <laughs> every excerpt, every copy of every excerpt I've ever owned, and they are all filed appropriately for the first time in maybe 10 years. So that's a big deal. Casey, we're going to get tagged for copyright infringement on YouTube because of that stupid thing. You're right. That's probably so. So sorry, everyone. I found a sound effects app on my phone, and and I think this is just how the show's kind of going to be now. Yeah. Ben, are you there? Are you there? Uh, yeah. Are you, are you, you had about enough of this? Should yes. I be done? You should be done. Okay. Well, that's a good way to... <laughs> We'll, we'll try to squeeze as many of those in as we can. And those of you who are listening, if you just want to stop unsubscribe to the show or whatever, that's how it'll be now. So anyway, you guys will our guest today. He's professor of percussion at Sam Houston State University. He's worked with some of our most known composers, including John Luther Adams and Mark Applebaum. And he's got a great ongoing roster of commissions and interdisciplinary collaborations with various types of artists. And he's the host of a really cool podcast called Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives, which I've listened to, I literally think, 90% of every, every all of them. I think I'm just missing one or two of the earliest episodes, and I've really enjoyed it. He's a Yamaha artist, Yamaha performing artist, and a IP artist, and Evans Drumheads, and also Zildjian Cymbals, and it's our buddy John Lane. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you so much for having me. And hey, thanks for listening to my podcast. Sometimes, you know, I never hear really much uh, feedback, so I'm glad to hear that uh, that you've enjoyed and, and listened to so much of that. So it's been really meaningful for me. So thank you. Yeah, sure. You're welcome. You know, I was thinking we've been we've started these roundtable type episodes, and yeah, something I wanted to I wanted to do someday is get a bunch of podcast content creators together because there's a few of us now, and um, just chat about it and one of one of the things i feel with this podcast too is yeah i have no idea how many people are listening like it's so hard to get a sense yeah. and then you go to PASIC and it seems like everyone's listening you know or yeah um yeah it's really hard so i have bravo on it and i recommend it to anyone listening oh thank you yeah what made you decide to want to do that <clears throat> well it started from uh i had a sabbatical in 2015 it was that year um, and two things happened, uh, that year. I, I rec well, three, three big things happened. One, uh, my son came into the world. <laughs> that was a big deal. Yeah. Um, the next thing that happened was I recorded this big solo percussion album of Peter Garland's, the landscape scrolls. And I made this podcast. Um, it really came from a place of like being kind of burned out to be perfectly honest with you. And, um, I've always been more interested in the the creative side of of art making generally, not not just music making, and certainly not just percussion, but just the trying to figure out. There were so many people that were doing interesting work, and I just wanted to talk to them. So it came out of this kind of idea of wanting to just explore. Um, 
And there were just a, a long list of people that I wanted to talk to. And I had this long conversation with this um, with a friend of mine and I, about just his work and what he was doing and a uh, visual artist. Um, and uh, I, after we hung up, I thought, man, I really wish I could go back and revisit that conversation. There were so many things that were interesting that I would want to write down and think about again. And so I, that's what kind of clicked. Oh, well, I should make a podcast and I should just do that. I should just have those conversations with those people that I'm interested in. And um, yeah, just kind of went went from there and uh, wanted to make it as high quality as possible, you know, with uh, the production from the production standpoint and all of that, too. So anyway, yeah, that's kind of where it came from. It's really nice. And I know, you know, saying you're interested in so many other aspects of art, not just in music and percussion. I know I've had people write into us and say, you know, isn't this a percussion podcast? Why are you all talking about mathematics and like, all these other other things? And why are you talking about wind harps that sit in medieval castle windows that, you know, that, and like what I'll talk about today is nothing to do with percussion as far as so I don't know. It's it's um, it's interesting that I think, yeah, as we all kind of grow up as musicians, we we broaden. Ben, I think you have something, right? Yeah, John, you mentioned it. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's good. John, you mentioned a name that I think a lot of us are probably familiar with through his work, Apple Blossom, Peter Garland. Um, and other than Apple Blossom, I know he has some other works with percussion, but I don't really know anything about Peter Garland. Could you tell us about uh, his works that you've worked on? And I'm assuming, knowing you, that you've personally worked with him as well. I've spent a lot of time with with Peter. I've gotten to know him very well. We're we're very close and. Um, He's a he's an interesting he's an interesting artist. He um, I, let me tell you about his percussion music though. For, first and foremost, uh, how I how I found his music was through Apple Blossom. I mean that that's the piece that everybody knows. And Christopher Dean, when I was a student at UNT, played a recording for me of the percussion group um, Black Earth Percussion Group uh, recording of that piece, and I was totally mesmerized by it. And, uh, and then just sort of filed that away as something that I might explore um, when I was in Cincinnati, I, because then I went on to study there with the percussion group Cincinnati. And um, I saw a recital of another doctoral student, and he played this piece called Nana and Victoria, which is a big multi-percussion solo of Peter's. And um, I was just totally um, tranced by this piece. I just, just totally lit me up in a way I was just, I said, that's what I want to do. You know, so I went and got the piece and learned it. And it's for, uh, you're supposed to play it on Native American toms and it has a rattle and water drum. I didn't know until I got the score that each movement also has a poem attached to it. And so i am uh, been a big uh, proponent of speaking percussion repertoire. And so when I do that piece, I speak the poem and then play the movement, speak the poem, play the next movement. Um, so that that's the piece that kind of got me started. And uh, when I was so I did all of my doctoral research there at Cincinnati was on Peter's music. So I wrote to him. Um, uh, I wrote uh, John Luther Adams actually gave me his address. He's he claims that he's really easy to find, but he's very hard to find. But I tracked him down, um, got John Luther Adams sent me his mailing address. I sent him a letter and he sent me this beautiful typewritten letter back saying, you know, uh, this reminds me of when I wrote to Lou Harrison for the first time when I was a student. And it was just this lovely, struck up this lovely correspondence via letters, which was crazy, you know, back in, the, that was in what, 2006, 2007, something like that. 
Um, anyway, so um, he has several per uh, percussion solo pieces. Nan and Victorio, I mentioned. The, uh, I commissioned a piece called The Landscape Scrolls, which is a concert-length piece. And that uh, that recording just came out uh, in uh, last fall on Starkland Records, so you can you can find that. Um, there's a, a number of chamber music pieces um, that he has. Um, there's a collection of three pieces for percussion that has a, a few quartets in it. The Hummingbird Songs is a big, sort of like his version of clapping music. It's for hand claps and whistles and bird calls and that kind of thing. Anyway, and then a number of, uh, I think Peter's most beautiful music is actually um, his string quartets. And uh, he has two phenomenal string quartets and a bunch of chamber music with small percussion as well. So anyway, I can go into the weeds on all that stuff. <laughs> but um, yeah, Peter's music is fascinating. And um, it's uh, in large part influenced a lot by Native American music and culture. Um, he lived in some Native American villages in um, Mexico for a while. And um, so it's it's uh, heavy stuff and, and more people should know this music and play it. I, I think it's great. So great. That was that was the big impetus behind putting the recording out of the landscape scrolls was I thought this was a really important piece and hoped that people would more people would play it and pay attention to it. So Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, John, this this brings to mind I remember a while back I read something that you wrote and I'm sure it's on your website somewhere. Uh, about how you say basically any piece you play now, you're more interested in performing a piece by a, a composer that you've worked with personally or met personally or corresponded with personally. And could you tell us about like your kind of philosophy on that? Sure. Um, I, I talk a lot about this with students and um, about choosing music. I think... Um, it's a it's a big it's a heavy topic right like how do we find music to perform like how do we decide what to play um i've just had really great experiences working with composers um you know not not just percussionists writing music but but composers who don't play the instrument that have an idea about things they want to hear or things they they are curious about and uh, are ideas just ideas and um, so i found those to be really re rewarding experiences regardless of the quality of the piece that ends up you know coming you know in the end um i, I just like that process I, I think i said earlier that i'm i'm really interested in the creativity of art making so i think maybe that's why i have that kind of inclination to want to make something new with someone that I know that I can have a relationship with. It's not just the pieces delivered on my doorstep, but we can, you know, send me a sketches and let's talk about ideas and I'll show you what I can do and look at this collection of instruments that I have. Or um, these days, I mean, I'm, I'm making my own, my own pieces and, uh, and kind of in that vein. So. Do you think that's because yeah. you want to be, is, do you think that's because you want to be part of the compositional process? Like, is it a creative itch or is it because like you think you can help with the process or you just enjoy the process or maybe a mix of all those things? Yeah, I think it's a mix of all those things. And I, and I mean, I definitely write my own stuff as well. So, so I definitely, um, you know, scratch that itch <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we do have, we do have a question from Facebook sure. regarding your compositions and I believe it's right here from Chris Hewitt 
says, love John's music. Questions, do you have any compositional systems that you gravitated towards when you started composing and do you still use them? Yeah, I've, I've explored a lot of different systems. Um, I experimented with graphic notation for a while, which, which I liked. Uh, I like to improvise, and so there were a few pieces that used that. And I still dabble with that from time to time. Um, I work a lot with poetry and spoken text. So often that influences the, the kind of the, the way that I'll, this kind of system that I'll set up on a page. For instance, uh, there's a there's a piece that I wrote for Al that ended up in our piece, The Innocence, which maybe there's a question about that later, um, called Truth is a Knife. And in that piece, I have sort of text on one side of the page and then, you know, some gestural uh, idea on the other side. And the idea is that they just kind of float together, that the, the text just kind of goes over the top of this gesture in an improvised way, however I feel at the time. Uh, and I've used that a lot. Um, and then for for my pieces that use uh, pitches, I've actually, uh, the first time I got to write a uh, song cycle, uh, so I wrote a piece for soprano and piano uh, last year, and I'm writing a new one this year. Uh, and for that one, I use, you know, uh, set theory, uh, pitch sets, and working with rotational arrays and uh, that type of thing. I find that a lot of fun to uh, work, you know, compose atonal music in that way. Um, those are some systems that I like to use. Can you describe what you mean by rotational arrays? Sure. So, uh, I mean, I know what it means. I don't know about. I, I'll just I'll just describe like a really simple version of how I use this idea. So I'll go to um, first of all, you take all twelve pitches and number them zero to eleven. So C would be zero right, all the way through all 12 pitches. And then um, I'll go to like random.org and I'll say, okay, generate generate uh, five random pitches um, or five random numbers between zero and 11 and give me, you know, 10 sets of five pitches. And then I'll write those out, translate those into pitches, and then I'll take those to the piano and I'll just listen. Uh, I try to get them to spit them out randomly and not in order you know, so they'll give me a random order of pitches, non-repeating. And I'll just sort of listen to those. And um, you know, I think John Cage said one time, it was like finding uh, seashells, you know, walking on the beach and finding seashells. That's how I find these sounds. And then once I have a cell, then I'll take that cell and make different transpositions of it or, or um, you know, retrogrades or inversions. And then I have this beautiful you know, beach full of seashells that I can choose from for my pitch material. Uh, and then, then we're off to the races. Very so, cool. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Ben, I think, you know, we've got a pretty loaded show today, I think. So maybe we should try to start early. I think you have a topic for us. Give John yeah. We always like to like try and like cover a topic first before we like get too far into discussing a certain person and the name Alan Adi keeps coming up. So I figured we just dive right in on my topic for today, which is Percussion Group Cincinnati, um, which probably most of us are fairly familiar with. Um, but my first experience with Percussion Group Cincinnati was when I was an undergrad student at UNT, maybe around 2006 or so, Percussion Group Cincinnati came and performed a program. And I remember they did Dressur uh, by Mauricio Coggle, which I had never seen, didn't know anything about walking into it. And it was one of those like early experiences with new music where you just go like, what? what did I just see? 
<laughs> what was that? And then uh, my other favorite, like, personal memory is uh, I saw him at PASIC a few years ago. I think it was when they did the John Cage celebration. They did living room music. I think they just did story. Uh, no, actually, no, they did a few couple moments, maybe even the whole piece. I don't know. Anyway, but um, their living room music was by far the best living room music I could imagine existing. So I'll give just a little brief backstory on Percussion Group Cincinnati. And it was founded actually sort of uh, out of the out of the ashes of Black Earth Percussion Group, which uh, John already mentioned. And we talked about, believe it or not, way back, I think it was 2015 on episode four of At Percussion with Sean Connors. Um, so if you want a refresher on Black Earth, you can take a look at that. But basically in 1972, Alan Adi and Gary Kavistad formed Black Earth Percussion Group. This group went through several iterations with different members, different residencies, but by 1977, they ended up as the ensemble and residence at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. After two years of that, Gary Kvistad and Stacy Bowers left the group for other careers. So in 1979, Alan Adi was joined by Bill Uhas, who had been teaching at Ithaca College, and Jim Cully, who was a recent Eastman graduate, to perform, uh, excuse me, Percussion Group Cincinnati, and they became the new artists in residence at uh, CCM, and they've been there ever since, basically. Uh, within one year, by 1980, they performed their first concert in New York City. They appeared at their first PAS Day of Percussion and completed their first European tour, including a couple of uh, recording projects. In 1981, they had their first ever PASIC appearance out of 16 to date since 1981, so they're sort of one of those regular fixtures at PASIC like Stephen Schick that appear quite a few times every couple of years. Uh, they've worked heavily with John Cage and Cage wrote several pieces for them, including his Ringa with Music for Three, which was written for them and premiered at PASIC 1984 in Ann Arbor. In 1985, Bill Uhas left Percussion Group Cincinnati and he was replaced by percussionist Jack Brennan for a year and a half. After that, Ben Toth replaced Brennan for five and a half years. Uh, and during this period, there was a grad student at CCM by the name of Rusty Burge that often joined the group for quartet performances. And in 1992, Rusty Burge joined the group as a full-time member. And either at that point or shortly thereafter, Ben Toth left the group. Uh, in 1988, they premiered Russell Peck's percussion concerto, The Glory and the Grandeur, with the Greensboro Symphony in North Carolina. And that they performed that concerto several times, it seems like the world over, and I remember reading an article where they said every single time it gets a standing ovation. Uh, it's one of my favorite pieces. I've gotten to perform it, super cool. And uh, one of the coolest things about this group is they've really uh, taken great care to work directly with composers, much like John was talking about, including, I mentioned already, John Cage, Herbert Brune, and then many CCM students have written for this group, and I'm sure Alan Adi has workshopped their pieces with them. They were inducted into the PAS Hall of Fame just a couple years ago in 2017. And from that article, Steve Schick gave a quote. He said, they're on par with the great chamber music ensembles of any size or instrumentation. Their goal as a percussion group has been to continue the distinguished lineage of great chamber music playing. They have modeled themselves on the tradition of great string quartets and the maker of the LaSalle or Guarnieri. They are a treasure exemplary of the highest ideals we have for ourselves as percussionists. And then John Lane actually also gave a quote for that same little PAS write-up where he said, when they began to play, it was absolutely magic. The sound, the touch, and perhaps most of all, they had something to say with every piece. That they performed at the highest possible level is not surprising, but that they could offer this as an intimate, community-oriented event for mostly locals with a few students was deeply meaningful. 
Uh, so that's sort of the Cliff Notes version of Percussion Group Cincinnati and Alan Audie, and I'm sure that John Lane has much more to add to that discussion. Man, well, so. uh, well, you guys should have Al on your show. I mean, that's number one. You should you should definitely have him on. But I can tell you that quote that I gave was, uh, I just moved to Cincinnati to be a student there. And um, they said, oh, we're having a, a concert. It was before school actually started. I think it was in the summer. And it was at this little community church up in northern Cincinnati in one of the suburbs, this tiny little church, you know, this... Uh, you know, pews and uh, a small little stage up front, and they played sort of their greatest hit show. They played the um, the uh, imaginary landscape number two. They played living room music. They played, uh, gosh, what else was on that program? Uh, the Chilean songs. Um, a number of their um, uh, a number of their sort of standard pieces. And you know, maybe there was a hundred people in the audience, but it was. It was unreal to me that they could, I mean, the, the, they would just breathe together and the sounds that they were producing were just, it was just magic. There's no other way that I could describe it. And so that sort of the, sets the stage for then that quote, which is that this wasn't a concert in front of, you know, uh, um, a highly critical audience. This was mostly local, local people from the church, a smattering of students, but they just put on the one of the best concerts still that I've ever seen, you know, um, and that they would do that for this community outreach event was just blew me away. Um, when they did the John Cage focus day, it wasn't that many years ago. We were all there. Yeah. That was like 2012, right? The centenary. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. It was just, it was just great. I mean, it was just so, I felt like it was so important. I saw that, you know, and yeah. I mean, and and I guess years since that, I've seen Amadinda perform John Cage, and we have Zoltan Rotz from Amadinda on the podcast. But I mean, it's like you said, the people who you, you want to work with composers and you hope to not just have them hand you a piece, but really get to know them. And I mean, it seems like these people who are truly experts with these composers. I mean, it's really different when they perform. And I remember, man, when... Yeah, I still remember Al Al Adi playing his little shaker on the third construction, his little pod rattle, and I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, yeah, it was it was magic. Yeah, 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 and you know, part of that is, um, you know, part of where where I'm coming from with making these personal connection with composers, and uh, I mean, that was definitely what I saw modeled there at Cincinnati. Um, you know, that's why I do that because I saw how successful it could be to find a composer whose voice you, you thought was really interesting or somehow spoke to your taste or your sensibilities, whatever the, whatever that is. Um, but then to, to partner with them in a, in a way, uh, in a creatively charged kind of environment can produce just beautiful, beautiful results. So I saw that modeled time and again there. And so that definitely was where that came from for me too. Um, but you know, they work, they worked really hard for, you know, almost 40 years. Uh, and they have a, a big studio in the basement of CCM and they would, they had time blocked out every day and they just played every day. You know, um, it was just the, just a constant work ethic for, for many, many, many years. And you just don't see that many long-term 
percussion groups, you know, that, that have that kind of staying power. And, and I mean, there's Nexus we could think of, you know, some other groups have stayed together for a long time. So percussion, of course, has been together for many years, but that, that's, that's something, you know, that, that they can just read each other's movements, breathe together in a way that's just, um, really, really magical, but it just comes from spending lots of time together and, you know, every day. Can you imagine? I mean, how, how, how wonderful would that be? So then what do you got? Yeah, I just can't, I can't imagine rehearsing just with two other people daily for 25 years. It's <laughs> just it's crazy. Um, one thing that I was fascinated to sort of read about is, uh, and the other artist that comes to mind with this thought is Nancy Zeltzman. And they talk about how how careful they, they've always been with like constructing their sounds and trying out different mallets and trying to get a blend. And obviously, like I said, Nancy Zeltzman with Marimba Lynn was another artist that put a lot of thought into that. And one thing I, I've heard that I'm sure you could clear up for me, I've heard that actually they have like basically declined any sort of corporate sponsorship for their entire existence. Like they are not a Zildjian artist, not an IP artist, not a Vic Firth artist. And I think it comes out of this idea of like they want to basically have all their options available. Am I am I making this up or did I hear something about that? Well, I mean, that's part of the reason. Um, there's, you know, there's definitely a, um, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly how to say it, an anti-corporate sensibility, which I, which I have great respect for. And, um, um, and, I, th I think that's really important to have some aspect of uh, of a kind of a non-corporate idea in our in our work, even though a lot of what we do sometimes is is tied with industry. But I can tell you, I asked Jim Cully one time, like, so how come you you know why why have you not uh, endorsed any any projects? And he said, well, I want to use my Rogers 1966 Rogers Tom Tom on this piece. And I don't want anybody to tell me I can't do that. And that was his answer. <laughs> so fair enough. Good enough for me. Um, and and with Al, there's uh, there's lots of you know sociopolitical um, feelings about that. And um, yeah, I think it just I, I think if I were to boil it down to easily digestible idea, it's it's the idea of a non corporate kind of mentality. And uh, music's not really about that. And so they. They didn't need it. Uh, they didn't really. I mean, they, I'm sure they could have, uh, in some ways, benefited from from some aspect of it, but it wasn't worth the cost to them in terms of their integrity. So mm -hmm. that's that's where it came down. And and I would add, you know, for our younger listeners, this is a probably a very varying relationship. You know, I know my sponsors have said things to me before, like, "Yeah, of course we want you to use our stuff as much as you possibly can," and definitely when you want to but yeah of course if you're playing some obscure something and you need something we don't have and it just works better to use this other thing oh yeah go ahead you know but then i've you know i've also heard of people who they make a recording of something using the you know the wrong drum heads or the wrong cymbals or something and they'll get that email from the company saying hey we saw this video yeah great performance uh, do you have everything you need over there? Is there anything we can send you? You know, like kind of politely saying, oh, would you please use our gear? You know, yeah. and then you've heard of other people that they did the same thing and the company is like, hey, what the hell? So it's a, it seems like it's very different depending on who the who the people are. You get into some weird situations too. I've seen this with Christopher Dean's music on a Vic Firth recording and with Casey's music on a Black Swamp recording. What? Where it is what? like, 
composer percussionist will compose a piece and then Vic Firth puts out a recording of like Morning Dove Sonnet by Christopher Dean, but he's an innovative percussion artist. And it was actually interesting. I think on the Vic Firth like YouTube video in his bio, they actually list that he's an IP artist um, because it's it's a Vic Firth video, but they have the about the composer section and they don't like censor that out. And yeah, like Casey is a Grover artist. And I remember seeing a Black Swamp video of one of Casey's pieces by someone else, not recorded by Casey, but. Well, I, I, if, if I may, just um, my my um, my sort of idea about this is. Um, I think I think the industry stuff is really important for education and for um, visibility for those of us that are in education. Um, if you're a commercial artist, you know, if I'm playing drums with a band and I'm on the road, those relationships are really important. Um, but the kind of music that I do, that I perform mostly, uh, has nothing to do with cor the corporate world. You know, where, where the corporate stuff comes in is when I want to give a clinic at PASIC, then it's important to have those relationships because it's easier for me to get uh, recognized, um, you know, it gives the visibility, it gives the sort of cachet or a stamp of approval or whatever that, whatever that is, um, it helps, you know, and it, uh, and then it allows for us to, to be visible in that community. Um, but I can tell you that, that, you know, the most, some of the most meaningful musical experiences that I've had have nothing to do with corporate corporations or, uh, right. products or anything like that. So, um, it's 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 tough um, for for me to think about sometimes because I don't I also don't want to be limited, but I but I see the value in it. So I think it's part of just being a 21st century, um, you know, percussionist, especially in higher education. I, I think it's sort of hard to to not do it. You know, um, and I love how I love how man. I mean, at least my sponsors they've they've always wanted to keep my side of things about the craft. You know, like. You keep up. You're good at the art side of it, and if you're willing to do a photo or you're willing to do a whatever, great. But yeah, the amount of things they've asked, you know, asked to have done, I think they're very, you know, they're very smart about like that's what that's John Lane is good at that. Keep let him keep doing that. You know, we don't want to bog him down with. Uh, yeah, I, I and, I, and I, I'm glad we're talking about this because young young folks always ask. You know, students always ask about sponsorships and how it works, yeah. and what it does for you. And, yeah, what the relationship is like. Yeah, a lot of students are really interested in it. I mean, it's um, yeah. I think we have a question from, unless I'm skipping something, guys. We've got a question from our buddy Mark Ford, and Mark Ford says, and again, we'll just continue on with uh, back to your relationship with Alan Audi. Mark says, please discuss your collaborations with Alan Audi on the Innocence Project. Give examples of the impact of this presentation and those in, uh, in, on those incarcerated as well as general audiences. Yeah. Well, speaking of non-corporate, <laughs> right. this, this, this project would be the, the very definition of, of non-corporate work. Um, so uh, when I was a student at Cincinnati working on my doctorate, I was my related field was composition. I was studying composition as well. And um, Al was approached by a theater director, uh, Michael Burnham, to make a performance piece at the opening of a um, photography exhibit by Taryn Simon called The Innocence. And one of the things that's been really difficult about this piece is 
how to talk about it because I, you know, we could launch into the whole story about how it all came about and yada, yada, yada. Um, and that's kind of been a stumbling block for us to over the years to to get performances of the pieces because it's very difficult to talk about. So in the last few years, we have expanded it and we made a like a four minute promotional video that that we can just say here, let's let me just show you what it is rather than to talk about it. But since this is a podcast, I can just tell you what it is. So rewind back to 2006. Alice asked to make this piece for this exhibit of photography. So Taryn Simon is a um, photographer. She worked some for, I think, the New Yorker or the New York Times. She was a journalist, but also a artistic photographer as well. And she made these portraits of these individuals who had been convicted of crimes and served time in prison uh, who were innocent. And then they were exonerated through DNA evidence. And she very provocatively took these individuals to the scene of the crime and took their photograph or took them to the scene of their alibi. And there are these huge wall-sized portraits of these people. And so this was coming to the Cincinnati Contemporary Art Center, and we were asked to do this thing. And Al approached me and said, you know, you should make something for this. You should collaborate with me and let's make something together since you're doing composition as well. And so I jumped at the opportunity and we made this little uh, theater piece. Uh, there was movement as part of it, a group of actors who did sort of movement um, skit type active performance art kind of thing. And then we had these little interludes in between them. Uh, when we got to the gallery, we sat down and we were looking at these portraits and we had the book. Uh, there's a book as well uh, that was released at the same time. And so we were had sort of seen some of these photographs, but to be there and see these huge wall-sized portraits of these people and to read their stories. And I'll never forget, there was a TV playing in the gallery. You know, you could put on the headphones and sit down and it was an interview with one of these individuals. And uh, it was just heart-wrenching, this, this story. It was, uh, he was telling his story about how he felt like he was forgotten. And, you know, it's just really, really sad story to move to tears. We're sitting there in the gallery, just weeping, you know, and going, what are we doing? Like, how can we, what are we doing? Um, but we did it. And then a couple of years later, we had the opportunity to do it again. I did it on one of my doctoral recitals. And then uh, just here and there, it would pop up as an opportunity to do it again and expand it and make it bigger. And then in 2016, we decided, you know, we want to do something. Um, what are we going to do? Oh yeah, we have this piece, The Innocence. Let's revive that. And um, our friend Stuart Gerber has been a big supporter of this work for many years. Had us to Atlanta a number of times to play with Bent Frequency, and and said, you know, you should think about expanding this piece. That's it's leaner because when we would collaborate with them, um, we would do the first half of a program, 25 minutes or so, and then the second half of the program would be with Bent Frequency, and we would do the. Frederick Jeffsky pieces coming together in Attica, if you are familiar with those. Um, but that takes a lot more people. And he said, you should think about expanding this to be a whole, you know, hour long piece, just the two of you. And so we did. And uh, now it's an hour long piece, 16 individual tableaus that kind of explore lots of different aspects of this issue of wrongful imprisonment and exoneration, mistaken identity, incarceration itself, various injustices, um, racism, poverty, um, but also like at the end, the, the resilience and the survival of these people is, is profound. And um, 
the last couple of years. So we've been doing that. And um, we found our role as, as advocates for this issue. And it's funny that it just sort of landed in our lap. And um, what's interesting about doing a piece like this about an issue that was important in 2006 is that in now in 2019, it's not only still relevant, it's more relevant. Um, there are there are more and more uh, individuals that are found to be innocent in our criminal justice system and more people exonerated. When we started, it was something like 500 years total prison time served. Now that number is well over 5,000 years. Um, and depending on which study you read, you know, there's some that identify tens of thousands of years of time served. Um, anyway, that's what the piece is. Um, I can tell you that um, one of the things that it's allowed us to do is, uh, you know, we, we sometimes will get um, questions about, you know, have we done this for prisoners or incarcerated people? We haven't played this piece in a prison. I think maybe even Mark asked something like that in his question. Um, but we have played this for exonerees. <clears throat> and they're the ones that have been our biggest supporters, the the people that work uh, every day in the issue that, you know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Innocence Project, but they're a big social justice organization that does the work to exonerate people. Mm. And uh, we've we've collaborated with them. We've uh, had exonerees speak at our, our events um, this last April. We performed at the Innocence Network Conference, which is the largest gathering of people that work in this field uh, to exonerate people, lawyers and, and activists. And um, so we we found that those the people, the exonerees and the people that are doing the work are sort of our biggest supporters. So we feel OK that we're two privileged white guys talking about this issue that largely affects um, African-American populations, um, deals with racism, it deals with poverty. And that's something that we've had to learn how to talk about um it's hard to talk about racism you know um sure. and so i've been reading books and and trying to to be better um a better ally and uh learn how to talk about this issue because we'll go in and play the piece and inevitably the question comes up well what do you two guys know about this <laughs> you know um but but we we know a, a lot actually and and we've been um our biggest supporters, like I said, have been the exonerates and, and uh, they come to us and say, you know, you're, you're giving us a voice. We don't have a voice. And that, that's, um, that seems like a good thing. So, uh, yeah, that's wow. the innocent. So <clears throat> in the last year we did, um, we did a tour in Oklahoma. We, we went to the public schools with this piece for the first time, which was amazing. Um, we played at the Woody Guthrie center, which was a whole other, uh, experience. that was really interesting. Um, we've done university residencies this next year. We'll do tours in Minnesota and Ohio and Texas. And, you know, I, I, I would say that, uh, the innocence right now occupies a huge amount of bandwidth in my time. I'm thinking about it a lot. We're writing thousands of emails, organizing these tours and, uh, just, we're having a great time with it. I mean, it's fun, but it's also feels like really impactful, important work that, that we could be spending our time on. Um, so, yeah, it must it must be so hard to make the decisions. I mean, you have this idea. And I've, I've seen the videos you have up of 
what hammers on rocks and a lot of the excerpts you've shared from it, which are all all really yeah creative and very very cool. It, it must be so difficult to decide. Like this is such a heavy important thing, and you're coming into it like you said as an outsider who doesn't have firsthand experience, having been like you know falsely incarcerated. Like how do you even choose? Like I wouldn't even know where to start. You know, yeah. it's like I've yeah. never written anything that nearly that important and i don't think i have i'm have the courage to do so you know like where do you even start with that well um i mean we we read a lot of books and we watched a lot of documentaries and um you know like i said before this thing just kind of landed in our lap this wasn't something that i woke up you know an owl woke up one day and said you know what we're going to be advocates for the wrongfully imprisoned i mean i never in a thousand years would have thought right. that that would be the thing that I would do, but it sort of, it sort of happened. And then we just kind of got deeper and deeper into it and realized that this was a really important thing that we could do. Um, we, there was, a, we were sitting on a panel discussion we did this residency at the university of Georgia. This was back when, um, uh, with Brent, Brent, Brent frequency, a collaboration with them. And we did this thing and we were on a panel and there was a, an exoneree, um, the innocence project representative, and there was a lawyer there. And, we sort of started talking about this thing. The exoneree told his story of, of being, you know, uh, arrested and uh, serving his prison time and going through his whole ordeal. And um, I, I said, you know, sometimes I feel a little funny about just we're here making this this music. It feels like we should be doing something more. Uh, but the lawyer was the one that spoke up and said, you're, you're actually doing something that we can't do. We, we have volunteers that can come and fill out paperwork or you know, volunteer for the organization or whatever. But what we can't do is speak to the emotional core of this issue and advocate to people. Um, and it feels sometimes like we're speaking to the choir, but um, those people have come to us and said, you know, this this helps us uh, re-engage with the issue in a new way because sometimes you can become numb to it or, or, or frustrated, uh, whatever. And so this kind of recharges them. For others, it raises awareness about the issue. Maybe they didn't know about it. Um, and then well, for the, know. yeah. Oh, sorry. I, you know, I, I think there are definitely lots of things where we preach to the choir, but I, you know, I would just applaud you even more. I don't know if, I mean, I think everyone agrees. No, we don't want anyone falsely incarcerated you know, yeah. you know, like there isn't, there isn't a divide there. Like nobody yeah. thinks like, oh yeah, I'll deal with it. That happens. You know, at least I don't know. I've never heard of anyone taking that posture on it. So it's, uh, it is valuable what you're doing because they're, they're people who like need to remember like, hey, this is a thing we all don't like. And here, here's a way to feel about it and get charged up about it, you know? Yeah. I think we're, we're definitely a lot more comfortable now. That was a few years ago. Now we, uh, having been in those communities with people who are actually doing the work and doing this for them, and they've really encouraged us to to be advocates. And so it's really charged us up to to go out and do this more. Something that Al always says that when we do these talks to students or whatever is that, um, you know, it's it's good to raise your voice for something other than yourself. and And that's what we can do uh, in this with this piece. Of course. Yeah, I, I think people often think, oh, our platform is so small, but it's not as small as we think. Carly, I think you have a related question from Facebook, right? Yeah, we have a Facebook question from Brady Spitz, and Brady is asking, what are the intersectional points of art, music, and politics? 
Yeah, that's a big question. Um, thank you, Brady. <laughs> <for that> very, <laughs> very difficult question. Um, well, uh, I would say that um, my ideas about this have been formed uh, a lot by you know conversations with Al and him giving me uh, things to read and um, some people that I would uh, point Brady towards to read more about this issue are uh, composers uh, Frederick Jevsky and Herbert Brun. Um, there's a, a book of essays by Frederick Jevsky called Non Sequiturs, and number of art, number of essays in there about music and politics, and Herbert Brun's When Music Resists Meaning. And both of those um, composers wrote very eloquently about this kind of intersection with music and politics. Um, something that I would say is that, you know, not everybody has to, um, not every composer, not every performer has to. Um, be politically active in their in their work. Some you know some performers just want to play Mozart. That's fine. I love Mozart. You know, um, some performers want to do what whatever. Um, that's fine. But it doesn't mean that uh, just because we play classical music or contemporary percussion music that we we couldn't pay attention to you know things that we see in our society or in our or in, in the world that we want to comment on or, or talk about, something that's important. Um, you know, at any of these sort of political protests, I mean, maybe there's a banjo player or a Bob Dylan type folk singer, you know, and that's sort of in the popular consciousness in America that, that you know, um, protests through popular music uh, is a thing. But um, why, why can't we do that with what we do? So that's sort of one one intersection of that is just using our art to talk about something that we feel is important. Um, it's unlikely that any of us are actually gonna make uh, huge changes to the socio-political landscape. I mean, something that uh, Jevsky says in one of those articles, is like, you know, we're probably not going to cast the deciding vote in some, you know, political decisions that shape the world. That's not gonna happen. But it doesn't mean that we can't think about it and, and work on things and, and confront those questions in our own work. So that's kind of where I, that's where I kind of see the art and politics coming together is that um, just, we can do it. So why not? Yeah. yeah. Everything you said, it just brought so many things to mind for me. And like, there's the, like John Lennon, like, you know, yeah, we're probably not going to change the world, but who knows? It's not, you know, it doesn't mean it's not worth trying. And I think John Lennon clearly did. They uh, certainly did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you brought up Frederick Zhevsky and uh, have you guys ever heard uh, the Zhevsky piece, The People United Will Never Be Defeated? No. It's, well, it's like an hour it's, long piano work. And it's, it's, like, it's maybe, it's maybe uh, one of the best, one of the greatest masterpieces of the, of the 20th century. I, I mean, mean of ever it's, i mean it's, yeah <laughs> well okay okay ever all right yeah i mean like i i just remember it like someone someone posted on facebook and it was like i saw it and i came back to it like a day later and i just sat there for an hour like holy shit this is this is just amazing i mean it's it's out of this world and then uh another political piece that comes to mind and i'm actually sort of bringing this up as a segue here uh it's one that i've performed a couple of times and i'm actually going to be performing again in september uh, and it's Christopher Dean's A Robe of Orange Flame, which is oh, yeah. about the, uh, the Buddhist monk that self-immolated in protest of the Vietnam War. It's for uh, solo thundersheet and spoken voice. 
And uh, I'm a Christopher Dean student, and John is as well. And it's funny, like when I hear you talk, like I can just hear Mr. Dean's voice inside your head because <laughs> you you seem to have such a, a similar outlook on things. And we had, I think it was Dave Hall. I also asked about working with Christopher Dean, but could you tell us about your experience working with Mr. Dean? I mean, that's really where the whole idea of uh, being a composer came from. And he very much encouraged me to study composition, um, you know, because he did. And um, I, I remember working uh, just some, some of the, I mean, those were really formative years for me when I was there studying with him um, and, and all, the, all the professors at UNT. But, but Christopher Dean in particular sparked that that creativity, that interest in the creative side of of music making. I'll never forget the rehearsals and leading up to uh, we premiered the um, Vespertine formations when I was a student there, and you know seeing the sketches of that piece coming together and just the whole creative process around that really um, really solidified in me that that was going to be something that I needed to do in my own work, but. Yeah, I, I, the thing that um, I'll always uh, think of with Christopher Dean is just the curiosity, you know, just just always curious and ob observing uh, observing things and then sort of synthesizing those things in his work, you know, and that Vespertine is a good example of that. So is the Robe of Orange Flame, um, which, by the way, um, we had a we had a percussion group for a while, Brian Zader and Christopher Dean and I um, called Pulsus and. Chris wrote a trio version of A Robe of Orange Flame for us that we played, I think, only one time. But that's that piece is really successful in terms of like a socio-political piece. And I know this isn't like a question that you asked, but I think it's important since we're talking about political music is like what makes a successful political piece, you know, um, because you can you know, you can make an anti-war piece where you shout, war is bad, um, but that's probably not going to be as effective as finding some angle um, where you can reflect on the issue, but not be too on the nose about it. And so that piece, it's an anti-war piece, essentially, but it comes at it from the angle of trying to understand why this monk self-immolated during the Vietnam War and it looks at that issue from three perspectives. It looks at it from uh, the the reporter who was there who reported on it, right? Um, and then from the perspective at the end of trying to explain to a child why this happened, how this came to happen, mm -hmm. and that's where the whole robe of orange flame comes in. So that's that's a that's a beautiful piece, a fascinating and a really important one. Yeah, and I think it's it's helpful with that piece too that it's uh, it's from a historical perspective. You're not it, it maybe directly relates to issues today, but you're just speaking about something in the past, the Vietnam War. Like, and I mean, I think pretty universally, everyone agrees today. Like, the Vietnam War was was just bad. Like, there was no good to come out of it from basically either side. Uh, I just wanted to ask really quick about that trio version because I, I think I've heard of that like once before, but I've never it, like. I, I can't, it's such a personal piece for me, like an individual piece. What, how, what is the trio version, basically? The trio version was basically, as I remember it, um, Brian and I had uh, drums and, and gongs and maybe a bass drum, Chinese toms, wood blocks, and Chris played the, the, uh, the thunder sheet part. So it was basically an accompaniment 
you know, a duo accompaniment to his thunder sheet playing and he spoke all the texts. Um, that's, that's what I remember of it. Uh, gotcha. Okay. That, that makes yeah. More sense. Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, just back to, back to Dean. I mean, I, I love him dearly and, uh, just, you know, one of the, one of the most important people formative in those formative years for me that, uh, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without his, uh, you know, without his work and his sort of perspective. So really important. Yeah. One of my favorite punk rock bands growing up was Bad Religion. And, you know, every song is something political for sure. And they're always making some social justice point of, of sorts. But uh, their singer, Greg Gaffin, I, I know I've said this on the show already, so sorry. But um, he he said it's great to do messages through music like this because if music is attached to it, you can absorb the message on your own time. So you learn the words, you know, the, the licks, you know, the riffs and the melodies are in your head. And then like when you're ready, the words will make sense. Yeah. And, I, and I thought that was really cool because then it doesn't have that preaching to the choir effect. And it also doesn't have a, hey, I'm forcing you to like absorb this message. And it's, uh, yeah, I just really, really like how he said that you get to absorb it at your own pace. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. One of the one of the I'm sorry, just one more follow up yeah, idea please. with that. One one of the things about I go back to our innocence piece. Um, one of the things that's great about being a percussionist or writing percussion music that's socio political is that, you know, for instance, in our piece, there's not really a single instrument on stage. We we play rocks. We're playing on, uh, you know, I, I have a canjo <laughs> device that I made. It's a tin can banjo kind of thing. Um, and we're playing with keys, we're playing on cardboard boxes, you know. Um, but it, it, all of those things sort of trigger uh, different uh, ideas, you know. With newspapers and cardboard boxes, you know, we're reflecting on poverty. Um, we're breaking rocks along with the chain gang, reflecting on what, what that might viscerally feel like to do that. So that's, a, that's just a thing, just a plug for, you know, making... Uh, interesting choices in terms of percussion gives us lots of different choices that we can make that can reflect on these things, not just with with words, right. with music, but but even symbolically. So yeah, yeah, just what you choose to hit. Yeah, hitting yeah, rocks yeah, with exactly. hammers while chanting. Yeah, sure. Carly, uh, uh, moving aside to something else, there was some sad news. Of course, we're releasing on July twenty fifth, but today is July seventh, and there was some sad news just recently. You want to tell us about it? Yes, I have some sad news for you all. The percussion community received this news this week that composer Michael Colgrass passed away on July 2nd of complications from cancer. Um, and as many of you may know, in addition to composing, Colgrass was a percussionist and a skilled jazz drummer and was known for featuring percussion instruments in many of his works. Um, some of his major musical accomplishments include winning the Pulitzer Prize for music in 1978 for Deja Vu, a concerto for four percussionists that was premiered by the New York Philharmonic. Um, he received an Emmy Award in 1982 for a documentary that was about his music. And he also played in the Pitt Orchestra for the debut performances of West Side Story. So that's a, a cool, cool story about Michael Colgrass. Um, in the obituary that was run by the Toronto Star um, this week, Ula Colgrass, who is Michael Colgrass's wife, is quoted as saying that Colgrass wouldn't want people to mourn his loss, but rather connect with the joy he tried to spread through his music. 
So along those lines, um, I'd like to share some fun stories that I read about Coalgrass this week and also share a bit of how I've personally connected with this music um, over the years. So the, the first headline I found when I was reading about Coalgrass was from the Washington Post obituary that they ran. Um, and the, the headline says, Michael Colgrass, composer who used humor and headstands to win listeners, dies at 87, um, which really piqued my interest. I had to keep reading. Um, and Matt Schudel of the Washington Post wrote that while speaking to school groups or workshops, Mr. Colgrass would sometimes shed most of his clothes, stand on his head, do somersaults, and balance on his forearms to demonstrate the connection of the body to rhythm and dance. Students at one urban high school were shocked to silence, he wrote in a 1972 essay, but by the time the session was over, the wrestling team was dancing to Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. So I thought that was really fun just to, mm -hmm. to imagine. You know, um, I met Michael Colgrass much later in his life, and I, I can't picture this happening, but I think, it's, I think it sounds wonderful. Um, Matt Schudel of the Washington Post goes on to say that Colgrass studied acting, clowning, and hypnosis and even once hypnotized an audience prior to a performance. Um, and on a, on a personal level, both Ben and I had the privilege of performing a few of Michael Colgrass's works for Wind Ensemble with Colgrass in the audience. Um, this was with uh, the University of Miami Wind Ensemble under the baton of Gary Green, which was the first Wind Ensemble concert that we played at UM. And it was just really memorable, like the energy that Mr. Green put into the preparation and performance and then the magic of hearing like all the, the orchestration come together was just wonderful. Um, and it was extra special knowing that he was there in the audience. And last year, I also I, I got the chance to play the relatively little performed um, concertino for timpani by Colgrass uh, with the FIU Wind Ensemble where I teach, which was actually written when Colgrass was still a student at University of Illinois. Um, so this piece differs a lot from what we think of when we think about these big wind ensemble pieces and all the orchestration and texture. It was just solo timpani and uh, brass septet, seven players. Um, you can still hear kind of the way that, that Colgrass treats melodic and rhythmic themes throughout the piece. So it's cool to see like the connection between his later works with some, some really great earlier pieces. Um, for, for more about Colgrass, Ben did a really wonderful segment back on episode 95 um, featuring Beverly Johnston, um, and he covers more about the biographical information, some of, ben, uh, some of Colgrass's pieces for percussion, and also Beverly Johnston talks about her experiences working with Michael Colgrass on the multi-percussion solo, Te Tuma, Te Papa. So check out episode 95 this week if you want to hear more about Colgrass. Um, in closing... The Toronto Star uh, publishes an invitation from Ulla Colgrass to us all, and she says, listen to his music and wish him a good trip wherever he is. Wow, thanks, Carly. I, I just have a quick little Colgrass story to share because uh, Colgrass is also famously a University of Illinois alum, so being a U, a U of I alum myself, like all the U of I people like to throw out Michael Colgrass as our lineage, um, but I heard many stories about Michael Kograt even many years after he had attended. Um, but basically, the percussion ensemble director at U of I, his name was Paul Price. And uh, Paul Price was one of the sort of founders of the University of Percussion Ensemble movement, if not the founder. And Paul Price invited Michael Kograt as, a, I think, a freshman student to one of the percussion ensemble performances. 
And the next day he said, oh, Michael, what would you think of the concert? And Colgrass said, well, I thought the students played very well, but I thought all the works he played were terrible. <laughs> uh, and so Paul Price was kind of like, oh, uh, well, you think you can do better? Why don't you write something? And so Michael Colgrass wrote something. I think it was Three Brothers. And the piece was performed and sort of well-received. And he talks about, I went outside and I looked at the flowers blooming in the spring. And I thought, wow, I'm a composer now. <laughs> And that was really how, his, how his compositional career began. Uh, and from, from what I understand, he was like a jazz drummer, like a, a kind of uh, student who was always getting in trouble. And so he would skip classes for a week. No one would hear from him. All his teachers would be mad at him. And then he would finally show up a week later with the fantastic new piece he wrote and everything would be forgiven and the cycle would start all over again. <laughs> so, yeah, really just like an, an interesting human being and obviously a, a wonderful composer. And like Carly said, we both got to work with him as students. And it was just amazing hearing him talk about these, I mean, 30 minute long masterworks for wind ensemble. And that concert, all we played were two of his pieces. It was Urban Requiem and uh, what was the other one called, Carly? Winds of Nicual. Well, that was it. Yeah. And I mean, both just jaw dropping pieces, um, not light music at all. It's so. funny to be introduced to Michael Colgrass and I'll say Warren Benson, too, with the snare drum solos. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you're you're, in, you're young, you're in high school. I mean, I know that Warren Benson uh, was it three three dances, three. Yeah. Dances, right. Um, yeah. Like you, th you think like, oh, this is who this composer is. This is what this composer is like. And I, of course, that's true. I mean, some they wrote, but then you hear some of these wind ensemble pieces by both of them. And it's just they're yeah, they're they're so wonderful you know they're and i think the snare drum solos are great but of course yeah they're they're big pieces yeah and i will say really in particular great. like urban requiem it's a it's basically a concerto for saxophone quartet and i mean just a mind-blowing absolutely mind-blowing work yeah well god we need to just scooch along here because we just hit an hour and a couple minutes so I know there's so much more to say. And actually, I, had a, I have a sound for you all this week, but I'm going to skip it. And it happens to be political and it's about the environment, but I'll save it for next week. But while we're on important dates, I was just going to hip you guys to what happened this day in history. So I'm just going to kind of blitz through them because a lot happened. And so this is regarding July 25th in music history. So a composer you might not know about on July 25th, 1831, this is the death date of Polish composer and one of the first professional virtuoso pianists of the 19th century. And her name is Maria Szymanowska. She died of cholera, sadly, in her house in St. Petersburg at age 41. So she, look up her music. You can find people playing her music. Again, it's Maria Szymanowska. And... The piano pieces are beautiful, and the first thing you're probably going to think is, wow, it sounds a lot like Chopin, and a lot of scholars debate. She, she does predate Chopin, and a lot of people are debating what her influence on Chopin really was. And so it's funny, we don't hear about her more, and I really wish we would. And again, if you like that, if you like that romantic style, listen to, uh, listen to her. Um, this isn't July 25th, but it's close and it's important. This is July 24th, 1989, a little piece called Rebonds B for Percussion by Giannis Zanakis. He was age 67 at this time, and it's performed at the first time in, in Avignon, France. Was it, was it Silvio Gualda? Was that the... I don't know. I'm not I, sure. 
Oh, I was going to be so proud of my percussion literature knowledge. I oh, you mean the performer? I, yeah. I don't know. It didn't. Um, I bet it, it was. It didn't I think to, so. I'm going to count myself right on that one. I'm proud of that. But this is First, just this is just in this is just in France. I don't know if this is the Rebon's premiere or not. Yeah, no, it's, it's I'm taking credit for that one. Okay, I'll give it I'll give it to you. I might just give you tell you what Ben. I'm going to give you three, Gold star. Golf, three Gold star. golf claps. <laughs> I think that's good. <laughs> I thought you'd have a sound effect ready for this one. I know I I know I should have. Yeah, shoot, I gotta get. I gotta get no, I'm sure I'm sure you're right. Uh, moving along. Oh, this is crazy. In 2006, a performance of Stravinsky's Histoire du Soldat. And by the way, Ben, there is an L in front of it on this one, just in this particular one, as it is usually there, uh, was played at Tanglewood, Lenox, Massachusetts. And the part of the soldier was taken by Elliot Carter, the devil by Milton Babbitt, and the narrator by John Harbison. So it was only 2006. It's just like amazing that happened. Wow. Uh, let's see, 1933, the first Dutch radio live concert was uh, aired by Duke Ellington. And in 1990, I re actually remember this, I was eight years old, Roseanne Barr sang the national anthem before a baseball game, and she just kind of screamed it into the mic, not singing it at all. Very Yoko Ono style, very avant-garde, Dada, crazy. And I remember thinking, like, that was the most bizarre thing ever, but it was very effective. <laughs> Any of you remember that? Oh, I, I definitely remember that. Yeah, and she spit too. I think she like after she like spit yeah, up the yeah. and I think that was a big part of it too. Speaking of there's, there's political statements, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I, was I was. I don't remember it happening, but I like I read about it since then, and like I think she claims that like she started too high in her range and then realized like there was just no way and just sort of like it was something like that. Yeah, so I mean, she, wa she was going to sing it. I, I don't I mean it's also it's also Roseanne Barr so who knows but yeah uh, yeah I but yeah that was a mess. Was it, what Casey was it at the World Series or something? Where what was the occasion or was it a football yeah, sure. game or something? Uh, national anthem in San Diego before a Padres baseball game. Okay, that, that I sort of remember it being baseball uh, related. Um, yeah, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, of course, she got just crazy criticism for it and booed just to no end um, um, during it. And let's see, I have one more for Ben because there's always, it's very easy to find Beatles history on the internet. And this is 1967. The Beatles and other UK rock groups, uh, I believe one was the Rolling Stones, urged the British government to legalize marijuana. Their comments were made in the London Times advertisement signed by all four of the Beatles from today in Beatles history. So those are your people, Ben. There you go. Advocating <laughs> drug use. Yeah. Hey, let's. Um, I know we're a little over, but let's try to um, let's try to finish. We have so many good Facebook questions, and I think we should go straight to one from our buddy Norm Weinberg. He says, John, with the interpretation of so many new works and deep works, what is your process for going into the meaning of the composition? Is it generally nebulous to you, or do you, quote, see certain things inside of the notes and or give meaning to particular sounds or passages? Um, that's hard. That's a tough question. Um, <laughs> Job, Norm. I think, I think I would answer it by, by saying, you know, maybe it's a good question to say, what are we doing when we, when we play music? And I think for me, I'm trying to communicate something. 
And so when I look at a piece and I'm trying to figure out what's going on in this piece and what I'm going to bring to it, I'm trying to figure out what it is that I want to say. And, and then what is it that this piece says? Um, I chose the piece because it hopefully said something that I wanted it to say. And then I go about figuring out how to say that. So there's some questions that I always ask when I choose music. And I share this with students. And I thought maybe this would be a good answer for Norm's question. Um, so evaluating a composition as an effective tool for communication. So there's some questions we can ask ourselves. Um, first, and, and the idea is that, um, you know, choosing music, is this a piece that I should play? Um, the first question is, well, the piece helped me develop technically. So there's some particular technique that this piece does. Maybe I can get deeper into that or, or challenge myself in a way. Is it challenging intellectually? How is it structured? How is it put together? Um, if the piece is not modern or Western, how did it function in its time and place? If it's not from our culture, how did it function there? If it's from, if it's a historic work, you can get some deeper meaning about the piece by investigating that. Does it have any extra musical connections? What's it about? Um, does it reflect my interests or uh, something that, that I'm interested in? Uh, does the piece allow me to be creative or use problem solving? Another important question. And then does the piece expand uh, a philosophical awareness? In other words, is it something that's challenging? Maybe I don't like it at first. And this particularly is good for students that they hear a piece and they say, well, I don't like it. Well, it's okay, but let's lean into that a little bit. You know, that's an important thing. So those are questions that I ask myself when I'm choosing pieces and what I share with students. Um, but I think like communication is what it's all about. So getting to the essence of what the piece is about, what does it say, and how can I, as a performer, bring something to that to, to communicate yeah wonderful thanks and carly i think one from bob mccormick right yeah one more so bob mccormick says john please talk about some of your upcoming projects and works that you will be performing over the next year um, and he's interested in both solo and ensemble projects okay well um I'm, we talked a lot about the innocence uh, that's an ongoing project we have three tours this year Minnesota, Ohio, and Texas, um, various universities and, and high schools and uh, those kinds of things. And we're still organizing all of that. But that takes up a lot of my efforts these days. Um, the other big project that I have going on will come to fruition in two years, but we're starting on it now. We, uh, I have a poet, a collaborator, and, and good friend of mine, Nick Lance. We work together quite a bit. Um, and we wrote an inter interdisciplinary grant together called Trigger, Artists Respond to Gun Violence. And our goal is to make three artifacts over the next three years. So we, we got funds to commission poets and composers, and uh, we're, we're making three things. A book of poetry with the commissioned poets, which will be published. Uh, an electronic online folio of new works for speaking percussionists and then a professional recording of those works. And I can confirm we have uh, some composers on board, Molly Heron, uh, Danny Clay, Amanda Schofs, uh, and percussionists Bonnie Whiting and Alan Adi will be joining on that as well. And both Bonnie and Al will be making works, but also coming down and, and doing performance and uh, appearing on the recording. So three artifacts, uh, all addressing the, the concept of gun violence, responding to gun violence. Um, so those are kind of my two big projects, the Innocence and this Trigger project for the next couple of years. Um, 
other, I mean, I have projects with my students that I, I'm always really excited to talk about. We, we just premiered a piece by Monica Pierce called Velvet. Um, Monica's a terrific composer uh, from uh, Canada. Originally, she's living in New Orleans now, but uh, terrific, terrific composer. We did a, a marimba quartet of hers. We recorded that on a program of Mexican and Canadian composers that we called Liquid Borders, which was sort of fun to do. Uh, another great piece on that concert was Gabriela Ortiz's uh, Liquid Borders, the namesake of that I named the concert after that. Um, this year we're going to do, uh, we have two composers we're working with, Paul Schutte and Jeff Harriet, making two new, two new pieces for percussion electronics. Um, we're going to do the Andreessen Workers Union and some of those Chilean protest songs on our fall concert, which I've never done the Andreessen before, so if you have any if you've done that or have any tips, I'm, I'm all ears. I'm looking, that's gonna be a lot of fun. My friend Jason Baker did that at Mississippi State this last year and uh, it looked really fun and I, I wanna get, get in on that. So um, yeah, uh, my wife and I have a, a trumpet and percussion duo that's basically been on hiatus since our son came along and we don't have time to rehearse anymore. Um, but I hope in the next uh, year or two that we can reestablish our, our uh, our duo and uh, we had commissioned a few pieces and uh, really looking forward to getting back into that again maybe in the next year or two but those are kind of my big projects is that uh that seemed like a comprehensive list of things yeah thanks a lot and, and one more quick little question i like sure. from uh, chris hewitt again and just can you recommend some books about approaching avant-garde slash experimental composition thanks i can't wait to check this episode out um, I, I really like John Luther Adams' uh, books, uh, Winter Music. There's a, there's, a, um, there's a really great chapter in there about how tools influence the work, and that, that one's been a really important one. Um, of course, all the standard, um, all the standard books, uh, Henry Cowell's New Musical Resources, hugely important book. Um, Harry Parch's Genesis of a Music, um, I mentioned uh, Frederick Zhevsky and Herbert Brun's books. Those are both really important books about composing. Um, of course, you uh, like the biggest shadow over my whole life in many respects for many, many years was John Cage. And I've read everything that that's come out, uh, all of his books, but also everything that has been written about him. Um, and I think those are essential reading for any modern young composers, uh, you have to read Silence first. You know, I think that's like seminal. And then um, all the other books by John Cage, so important. Um, I'm probably forgetting there are more, but um, yeah, those are the ones I would recommend. Cool. Hey, well, everyone, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, John Lane. This was really, really fun to finally, finally chat with you. And you know, Ben Carley, thanks so much. And yeah, we'll catch you all later. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Bye, everybody.